0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pensions Expert podcast. Every fortnight, we are joined by experts to discuss the pressing issues in the pensions world that made the headlines in the past week. I'm Maria Espadinha, D- Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert, and joining me are Darren Philp, Director of Policy and Communications at Smart Pension, and Judith Fish, Professional Trustee at Dalriada Trustees. This week we'll be talking about the regulator finding its counterpart for pension failures, the government's future consultation on public sector pension schemes due to a discrimination case, the House of Lords calling for changes to the pension schemes bill, and who is the new chair of the Work and Pension Select Committee. Darren, I would start with you. What happened with these regulators? They're finding each other for pension failures. Um, is this something that we've never seen? Is it almost like a comedy act?
1: Well, it's novel, isn't it? I don't think in my time in pensions we've ever had one regulator finding another regulator. And I think from some of the comments on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and blog posts I've seen, there was a sort of sense of schadenfreude that was coming out um, of this. But I think you know, putting the issue of one regulator finding another regulator to, to one side, I think it does sort of demonstrate the situation that the government and the regulator has actually got themselves in with these chair statements. On the face of it, chair statements are a great idea. The idea was to give members a high-level summary of how their scheme has performed over the past scheme year or so, and to make sure that you know members could be assured that the scheme was being well-run and well-governed and things like that. You take a look at some of these chair statements now, and some of them are sort of 70, 80, 90 pages long. And on the one hand, the government is trying to push this Simple annual statement agenda, you know, no more than two pages. And we're really supportive of that at Smart Pension. But on the other hand, they think that members are going to read a 70 page document. So I think something that started off as quite a nice idea to sort of improve governance and improve accountability has turned into a bit of a farce. And I think everyone in the pensions industry now sees these documents as a, a sort of regulatory compliance thing. So you chuck the kitchen sink at it, you make sure that there's no wiggle room in terms of the information that you put in there. They're not member friendly. They're not member focused. And I think the DWP and the regulator wanted something that was compliance document or scheme return type document. They should have legislated for that. And let's revisit the chair statement stuff and let's have it no more than two pages.
2: I completely agree. I think that, I mean, the fine has come out from the fact that you've almost got a tick box. If you miss one tiny thing off, your your chair statement failed. And it forgets the purpose, that the chair statement is meant to report on your governance over the year and how you've made sure that your scheme is fit for purpose. And it's become a compliance exercise. And really, there should be much more focus on making sure your pension scheme is doing the right thing, that you are looking at the charges, you are looking at how members are invested. And I completely agree with Darren. It would be better almost to capture that in a scheme return type format for the kind of tick boxy stuff and provide something to members which is much more member friendly. No member
0: is going to read the chair statements as they stand. Mm-hmm. And is that something that we can expect is going to change sooner? Is not in the regulator's horizon?
1: Well, I think it's more of a DWP issue to start off with because um, the legislation that underpins this is obviously with DWP. And um, I think the regulator has looked at that regulation um and said well you know even if you've got a hyperlink wrong or you've missed something here or whatever then yeah it's non-compliant and you know it's crazy um so i think you know the ball is in dwp's court to sort of put this right um you know like judith if, if if it is a compliance document and it's meant to be a compliance document we'd be happy to fill one of those in and give as much information to the regulator as the regulator actually wants yeah, because it's important that the regulator sort of checks a lot of this stuff. I would sort of question that, you know, we're an authorised master trust now, so the regulator's getting a lot of information about us anyway, which is a good thing. Um, but for other schemes that aren't authorised or don't have that sort of closeness of relationship with the regulator, then the regulator should get assurances around governance and systems and processes and all of the stuff that is in the, in the chair statement and stuff. But, you know, let's go back to basics on this and let's sort of Peel it back and just give members sort of um, a high level assessment of how that scheme has performed. And definitely the ball is in DWP's court on this. And, you know, if they want to improve member engagement, if they want to improve comms, Let's start with that, because i tell you something, you know, having one of those things, um, you know, drop through your letterbox. We do them digitally, but I can imagine some people might actually send them out. You know, you'd get the RSPCA involved because if it lands on a dog's head, you know, um, there might be something to uh, you know answer for there.
0: I think there would be an unwanted consequence. So one of the really interesting
2: pieces of information in the chair statement is the impact on charges on member funds. And because members aren't reading it, they're not seeing that. And they're not, you know, they're, so they're not... The important information they should be taking from this, they're not because it's in a not in a digestible format. We need to improve the way we communicate with all our members and... This is a step back.
0: Going to another subject that might confuse members, other members even more, is um, a future consultation coming from the public sector pension schemes due to a discrimination case brought by judges and firefighters. Uh, But then there's also another point of view, which means that new members could be worse off after the government tries to solve this issue. Uh, Judith, what are we talking about here and why are we talking about this now?
2: The government reviewed the way in which it provides pensions because the previous pensions or the pensions they were providing were very expensive to provide. And you've got some members doing really well out of it if they had very high earnings in their last few years before retirement and some members not doing as well out of it. So there was this disconnect between those who were high flyers and those who just work solidly within um The public sector, so the government decided to change the scheme, and they were trying to limit the impact on members who are close to retirement. So they said, if you're very close to retirement, we won't change it for you. We'll give you a tapering period, or we'll just leave you as you are. And that's what caused the discrimination. And the problem is, is that wherever you try and treat one group of members differently from another, you're going to get discrimination claims. And now the government's in a position where you've got winners and losers in both sets of schemes. It's going to end up giving the higher of the two. So the idea of having a sustainable Public sector pension goes out the window.
0: Is the consequence for taxpayers and other people? Well,
1: well, I think this sort of raises a series of really interesting questions when the government does pension reform because, you know, we're never starting from a blank sheet of paper. And if you are trying to sort of move public sector pensions from where it was, which is final salary, um, into that sort of career average um, space, and you're trying to do it in a sort of cost constrained way, there's always going to be winners and losers. But the McLeod judgment for me just shows that if you try and draw an arbitrary dividing line, it just means that some people are winners, some people are losers, and you are in in building discrimination and inequality into the system. And you know, quite often, what happens in these things is there's political fudge or political compromise to get something over the line, and the law of unintended consequence on some of this stuff is absolutely huge. And in your opening remarks, uh, Maria, you know, that you're you're right that this doesn't necessarily just impact on people who are in the scheme at the moment, and you know, the relative um, you know winners and losers within that, but also people who might join the scheme in the future because you know, if this thing's in, if this thing is rectified, and we don't know how. Now it's going to be rectified. yet yeah, I think we're still waiting on Consultations and all of that type of stuff to come out. But if this thing is rectified, then is the government going to be spending a lot more on public sector pensions going forward? So does it then have to reduce the generosity of those for those people coming into the civil service for the first time? So there's some quite big um, implications um, for this here, and people have been talking about sort of different methodologies for maybe um, dealing with the consequences of the cloud. Like, should you be sort of um, calculating the benefits in both ways? You know, should you just be looking to give people the better of or there's various different mechanisms um, to do this but that raises significant questions in itself I'm sure we might talk about the dashboard a bit later but you know can schemes data and can schemes systems and processes really cope with sort of running dual calculations and all of that type of stuff you know and for me it's not just the sort of unfairness or inequality side of this it's about the sort of logistics and the operations aspects of schemes looking to sort of deal with this and you know it's just a another it could be another gmp equalization couldn't it
2: well that's exactly what you made me think of but yes i think one of the key issues is how do you plan for retirement if you don't know how your benefits going to be calculated so if they are doing kind of a better of two you're always kind of second guessing what they're going to get you know what you're going to get in retirement Mm -hmm. which just makes pensions even more of a mystery to members than it currently is
0: isn't this something that maybe unions that put all this movement for the discrimination cases forward, they should have think about it? Because they also have newer members among the, the public. So shouldn't they think, wait, we can get this better from some of our members, but some of other of our members could be worse off? Uh, that
2: often happens with pensions change, I think. You know, I've seen many other cases where the unions have have rallied to improve the position for one group of members, not realising that by doing that and delaying change, they were you know, disadvantaging another group of members, maybe bigger. But I think that people get very scared when you're going to take away some of their defined benefit pension. You know that It's such an important benefit for people in the public sector. But in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, they should have just said, from this date forward, this is how your pension is going to accrue and that's how it's going to accrue for everyone. And for the people close to retirement, well, you've got, 35 years on the old system so it's not really going to make much change and for the younger people you know they get the new system all the way through but they bow to pressure to protect older members and this is what's happened.
1: Yeah, I think um on the union side of things, there's the insider outsider issue that you always get with unions. And unions do a fantastic job in terms of holding employers and, you know, policy makers and that to an account. But you know, are you representing the most vocal group of your current membership or are you sort of looking to the future? And as you say, Jude, if that hindsight is an is an absolute wonderful thing. I think you, you asked a question about sort of the the long term sort of taxpayer consequences of this judgement. I, I don't know to be totally honest with you. I, I can't see the government wanting to spend a lot more on um public sector pensions. You know, there's there's a, a um a defined pie there and ultimately it's about how you um how you start slicing and dicing this pie up. Lots of chatter at the moment, as you know, about pensions tax relief in the future of that and government looking to sort of clamp down on costs in that respect. So, you know, if anything, I think the government is looking to sort of spend less on pensions or, or give less relief on pensions in the long term, which means that, you know, um, judgments like this and um, issues like this just mean it's about how you divide that pie up between different groups of people. And that, from a society perspective, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. You know, It's difficult to see how this McLeod has a silver lining.
2: Well, yes, you just get intergenerational unfairness, because if the new generation of people coming through have to have a lower pension, because the McLeod judgment leads to extra costs in people who are already in the civil service and public sector more widely than, as Darren said, cutting the pie, spreading the money out in a different way.
1: And the, and the impact on schemes as well, sort of not to over egg that point, but running different benefit calculations, making sure data is up to date to actually be able to do all this stuff, you know, that's quite onerous on schemes as well. We know that scheme data isn't as always as good as it should be, um, even despite sort of DWP and regulatory efforts to improve um, scheme data. But you can just see when it comes to GMP equalisation, you know, the data problems that, you know, people have um, are astronomical. And it's probably the reason why a lot of schemes haven't sort of grappled with this. They don't necessarily want to open up that Pandora's box. You know, is this going to sort of have the same outcome? It's not going to be easy for schemes to be able to grapple with some of this stuff.
0: Another thing that the government is introducing is the new pension schemes bill. And on the second reading in the House of Lords last week, there were um, um, a lot of criticism about uh, the new criminal sanctions that um, TPR can um, bring in for people who have been reckless uh, towards the pension schemes, and they've alerted that some people might not want to become trustees, and some businesses might not want to, might just want to, to sever the links with their pension schemes just to being wary of this. Um, do you agree with the Lords, or do you think they're exaggerating a little bit?
1: So I think the policy intent is right. I think if people are willfully trying to stop people getting their pensions benefits or acting fraudulently or, you know, are just doing stuff that causes material detriment, it's only right that the regulator has powers to to hold those individuals or organisations to account. I think most people would agree with that. And I think there has been a sort of gap gap in the occupational pension space and previously around sort of Does the regulator really have the power to be able to do some of this stuff? Arguably, it might not have tested all of its powers, but, you know, that's almost a mute point. The government has made a policy decision that the regulator needs more powers to address this, which I think is ultimately a good thing. I know organisations like the APL and the PMI have sort of put a joint letter into the government, sort of echoing a lot of the concerns that were were made at, at second reading. And I think that, you know, there are concerns about the sort of scope of this, the materiality sort of thresholds, the, the fact that, you know, even some quite normal run-of-the-mill actions could potentially damage um, the potential funding position or the likelihood that members will get their full benefits. So I think it turns into a drafting issue. Yeah. And you've got the policy intent of the government and the ministers versus, you know, what is actually in legislation. Now, I'm not an expert on this and I'm far from it. But I think, you know, what I'm picking up is that the wording within the bill is very, very wide and causes a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, there's some quite crazy examples of things that could actually be caught by this new clause in terms of behaviour. So, you know, what happens, for example, if a government entity terminates an outsourcing contract? you know, where that's already been sort of, you know, embedded and that impacts on the sort of financial position of the employer that that then has an implication on um, the benefits or the the likelihood of those pensioners receiving those benefits. Where does this end in terms of individuals' behaviour or corporate decision making, in terms of the likelihood of an impact on the pension scheme. It could hit the regulator. If the regulator fails to act in in, in some way or acts in a certain way, could the regulator be caught by this? So, I'm very supportive of the principle that if people are acting in, let's say, a naughty way, then the book is thrown at them and we give members as much protection as we possibly can. But I think the government really does need to look again at the drafting because otherwise we're not seeing people rushing to become trustees anyway, are we? If you're a lay trustee, why would you take on on more risk um, given this clause is drafted in the bill?
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that the government needs to consider tightening up the wording of the drafting because you don't want it to be so widely worded that actually you have to rely on case law.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a key concern, isn't it? That ultimately it's almost like any action would be deemed to fall to foul of these clauses but you're almost hoping that the courts would take a sensible view and there's a question mark in that anyway but then it takes time for that case law to build up and it creates great uncertainty.
0: Uh, that brings us to the last topic which is Stephen Timms has been elected as chair of the Work and Pension Select Committee. He is not a stranger to pensions. He was pensions minister in 2005 and 2006 and again in 2008 how do you feel about this election? Are you happy uh, about the person who was elected chair?
2: I think he's got some quite big boots to fill following Frankfield. I think Frankfield really brought pensions up the agenda and publicised pensions to the wider you know, wider population. But he has a good grounding in pensions. He's a sensible man. He has a treasury background as well. So you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does.
1: So I, I was delighted. Actually, um, I used to work with Stephen when I was at the Treasury. He was one of the ministers. In his, his I think he was at the Treasury a few times and stuff. And I have to say, what a, a lovely person! He's very compassionate. He's very caring. He, he likes getting to the bottom of things. You know, he likes understanding issues and um, dealing in evidence. And I think, yes, indeed, big boots to fill. That is certainly the case. Um, but I think there'll be a different style from the select Committee before and rather than the sort of the big headlines which have obviously helped in terms of forcing governments to act on on certain things, I think there'll be a lot more maybe technical challenge and scrutiny of what the government is trying to achieve um, in in the area So you know I'm absolutely delighted that Stephen won that election and looking forward to that you know that committee getting stuck in to actually help making sure that some of the issues we've been talking about this morning don't necessarily come to the fore.
2: Well, because he also has, I think he said he's going to have a bit more of a kind of defined contribution auto-enrolment focus, which I think would be very valuable as well because actually most people aren't in defined benefit pension schemes anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you think he will be a dashboard advocate and will try to get the government up to speed with this?
1: Um, I think most people are dashboard advocates in some shape or form, whether that's singular or plural seems to be sort of a raging debate within the pensions industry. But I think as we're talking about dashboard, I can't help myself now, Maria, we need to get on with it. There's a real frustration within the industry around this idea that has been around for a long, long time now. And it would be great if we could just get on and understand what the common data is going to be that Peter's schemes are going to have to supply to the dashboard so we can sort of, you know, understand the governance and so we can start planning about, A, how we can make sure we're feeding the right data into the dashboard at the right time. Because the minister has said, you know, get your data dashboard ready now. Um, but what data? And, and how ready does it need to be? You know, we need the legislation. We need... The industry delivery group to actually specify this stuff. But then we just need to get on and deliver it and make sure that it's done in a way that allows innovation, but also remembering it is pensions and there are scammers out there and the scammers are very, very sophisticated that we allow the innovation, but we do so in a well-protected and and well-governed way.
2: And for members, you don't just have one job for life anymore, you're going to have lots of jobs and you end up with lots of pension pots, particularly undefined contribution. And it's really important for members to see it all in kind of one place, to see exactly what all their pension savings are.
0: That brings us close to the end and at the end we have this um, kind of space for a story that apparently is not connected to pensions but it is and it has a pensions angle which I'll leave it to you Darren.
1: Thanks, uh, I think it's really difficult to sort of follow Love Island and Pension Scheme Secretary um, but anyway I, I've, I've done my best and you know what I've come up with is a gravy angle. Now you might say what has gravy got to do with pensions but it's been in the news in the last couple of days that you know someone, a pensioner, had um, put 20 Eighty thousand pounds of their life savings in bistotins, and the, the pensioner unfortunately passed away. Um, and the family were clearing out the house, and they basically put all of these bistotins in the bin, and they got sent um, off to the to the local dump losing £20,000 and I think there's an issue around sort of pensions freedoms or there's a lesson for pensions freedoms there that cash isn't always king and actually sometimes you know it is better to keep the money in a pension or at least in a bank account than it is in a series of tins around the kitchen because it's a Monday morning and um, because we're with the lovely pensions expert crew I'm pleased to say that there is a happy ending to this story two local workers um, at the dump actually searched through goodness knows how much rubbish And they actually found these Bisto tins with £20,000 in and reunited the family with all of that savings. So there's probably a lesson there, which is, you know, think twice before you take all your money out of your pension and put it in a gravy tin.
0: Uh, Thank you, Darren. And thank you, Judith, for joining us today. And um, join us again to the next edition of the Pensions Expert podcast.